Our scripture lesson will ring true with all of the music that has been chosen this morning. It's to be found in Psalm 91, the first six verses, and then 14 through 16. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. And when they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock, our strength, our redeemer. Amen. I have to admit, you were singing like Baptists this morning. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful to believe what we sing? And to have a confidence in the faith that we have. And yet there's probably not a one of us that wouldn't like it to be deeper or wider or more ready. Julian of Norwich was an anchorite. She lived during the Middle Ages, and an anchorite is someone who, for religious reasons, has withdrawn from society so as to be led in an intensely prayer-oriented, communion-focused life with God. Anchorites lived in a single room or a cell attached to the church, and they went through a religious rite that consecrated, that closely resembled a life found, wandered in a funeral. The rites said they were dead to the world, a type of living saint they were to become living that life of prayer. Now understand, because she lived this life of prayer did not exempt her from significant trial. Her life was marked by illness almost to the point of death. And she repeatedly affirmed God's presence even in the midst of her anguish. 
She says at a point when she can scarcely have the patience to go on living, that God gave comfort and rest for my wounds. Delight and security so blessed and so powerful that there was no fear, no sorrow, no pain, physical or spiritual, that one could suffer which might have disturbed me. In fact, we know her most by her best saying, which is, all shall be well. And all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Julian lived and breathed a deep relationship with God so that in all of her struggles and ill health, she genuinely experienced living in the shelter of the Most High. Now, not many of us wouldn't think that being an anchorite would be a lifestyle choice today. But how does a person have such deep faith and learn how to live in this world? Wouldn't we all want to have that kind of anchor, that kind of peace and confidence regardless of the situation? Wouldn't we just love to feel that grounded, that safe in the midst of life's storms? Well, good news. God's got us. While verse 1 through 4 introduced the subject of the saints' safety, the major emphasis is on the fact that this is God with us. None other than the living God is our refuge and our strength. It's God's love and God's power which chooses us, that keeps us, that chooses to be there for us. The psalmist's confession of trust is because he has experienced that God is trustworthy. He's experienced God's fierce protection, and he uses exaggerated image such as the mother bird who is tucked all of her chicks under those wings. She's got them, and they're warm, and they're comforted. And just in case you missed it, that mother can be very protective. And so the image of the shield and the buckler to defend and protect, from the perspective of the protected, God is both warm and tender, but from the vantage point of the attacker, God is as strong as steel. Are the dangers absolutely and big ones? The dangers are likened to a trapper's snare and deadly pestilence. You know, the trapper's snare cannot be seen until you're caught in it. 
And those pestilence, deadly things are fatal. And yet the danger, whether invisible or incurable, God promises to protect in adequate and saving ways. Psalm 91 is meant to offer a way to grasp the hand of God without either drowning in our suffering or imagining that all is well with a pie-in-the-sky vision. It is an assurance that God really is available to us in every circumstance. And those who trust, those who trust will have God's experience of living in the shelter of the Most High and will thrive in the shadow of the Almighty. We are here this morning because we are believers or we really want to be, and yet we struggle at times to find that real peace and calm in our lives. Gordon Livingston, in his little book called The Thing You Think You Cannot Do, suggests this is why. We live in a universe where rewards and punishments are, in fact, not allocated according to merit. Nothing is odder than a survivor of a plane crash who attributes their luck to faith. I prayed and God saved me. As if the unanswered prayers of the dead somehow never reached God's ears. Some mysteries puzzle and terrify us. So what is required to respond bravely to the evident fact that we have so little control over what happens in life? As a result, we're tempted to ask pointless questions like, why me? Or why not me? Thinking that our fate is inadequate. Where is the solid ground? How do we address the gap between the faith that we want and the fears that we have? How can we get to a Julian spot where all will be well and all will be well and all manner of thing is well? Our scriptures reassure us that our solid ground is first in the promises of God. Missing from our lectionary reading this morning are verses 7 through 13, but 9 and 10 are critical to our understanding. They read, Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. God's promise assumes the existence of trouble and of opposition. In short, the deliverance, salvation, and satisfaction that come from God's promises do not mean a carefree, 
unopposed life. Rather, those who fully entrust themselves to God, fully entrust themselves to God, will experience deliverance, salvation, life itself, and joy in the midst of opposition and trouble. What's required is dependence, or said another way, surrender. All of us know that vulnerability isn't our strong suit. Apparently, God seems to admire dependency or interdependency. Richard Rohr in his Divine Dance states that in the grand scheme of things, all God really wants is you. All of you. He remembers telling his spiritual director one day, he was in the Franciscan order, that he wanted to be just like St. Francis. And he said it so many times that the director finally got around to saying, Richard, you are not. And you're never going to be St. Francis. You're not close, all right? You, unfortunately, are Richard Rohr of Kansas. Rohr said, it feels so insignificant. And yet, this is the liberating secret. Vulnerability is just the right key to un an ongoing, rather, ongoing grace. Because all authentic knowledge of God is participatory knowledge. God doesn't want you to be anybody else, but to participate in a way that only your life can. Think of it this way. Remember, a few weeks back, we talked about that wonderful, iconic picture in which uh, God... The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are at a communion table. And there's that wonderful spot in the front of the picture where there's something missing. And they believe there was a mirror glued there so that when you walked up to it, you saw yourself at the table. Imagine just for a moment, if you would, if you put the Trinity in a rubber band. God the creator of all things, power in the universe, Jesus, the one who showed us how to walk and live this life, and the Holy Spirit always whispering in your ear and in your heart. And by golly, who else is at the table but you? It's in this circle that we pull away, and yet the force brings us back. And it's always in this context that God is moving and living with us. But to see ourselves inside and a part of interdependent is God's desire for our lives. It's participatory faith. Because if we got that, then what next? I think our struggle lies mainly in our tendency to connect with the core heart of God and then on Sunday when we leave to set the rubber band down. Or to look at it this way, 
without us in it. If God is my shelter and my shield, now what is a really big question? Not only is our response important, but God's words found in 14 through 16 suggest that the people's response to God is critical. We can't experience what we are unwilling to remain engaged in. Now, this doesn't mean that God will deliver the people only the ones who obey and deserve God's favor. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, it suggests that the favor God always offers will be ineffective among unreceptive, unlistening, untrusting people. A profession of trust means that we have renounced our autonomy, that we have fully entrusted our lives and our futures to God. Indeed, it's precisely such trust that constitutes the meaning of salvation and joy. We are alive most in Christ. Rachel Held Evans, in her book titled Searching for Sunday, has a chapter called Dirty Laundry. I love the way this woman thinks. She was in a radio interview about why she was still Christian, and she said, I am a Christian because Christianity names and addresses sin. It acknowledges the reality that the evil we observe in the world is also present in me. It tells the truth about the human condition that we're not all okay. She goes on to say that the holiest hours in the life of the church are not always on Sunday morning, but in the basement on Tuesday night when a mismatched group of CEOs and single moms and suburbanites and Vietnam vets are gathered in the basement with strong coffee and stale cookies, confessing to God and to themselves and to one another just how far their lives have strayed, and they ask for help. Among the fluorescent lights and tears and nervous coughs and the faint smell of cigarette smoke, they summon up the courage to say, my name is, and I'm an alcoholic. They recognize the need that when they've wandered, gone outside of the loop, that they've got to come back in. Wouldn't you like a live, to live a life that stayed in the shelter of the Most High, at least more often than we regularly do? Don't we want the assurance that no threat or danger, no matter how great, is mightier than God's keeping power? The dangers we face haven't gone 
anywhere. And the psalmist knows it this morning. His words resonate with us as we deal with our fear and anxiety, our pain, and the significant challenges of our lives. Our society is faced with a litany of alarms, beckoning us to come to grips with terrorism, the potential of war, economic recession, global climate that's going to hurt our babies and grandbabies, broken relationships, and violence of all kinds. These are the realities in our headlines and in our minds. What the psalmist would have us know, though, is that there's a choice here. The truth is that as long as we live, we are never without choices. Will we take or make the time to have this relationship? Will you choose to live in the shelter of God as a priority? Read an interesting TED talk this week about Laura Vanderkam, who studies time management. 168 hours we have in a week, right? How do we find time to do what matters, to have the practices of faith that keep us here? Laura's been a life studying busy people, and she said, you'd think as a time management specialist, she would never be late. She has four small children. She was late to this conversation. Still, that's not it. She gets the most kick out of people who say there should be tricks on time management, how you can whittle a little more time out of your day. Her favorite is the DVR solution, where you take two hours of your favorite programs, watch it by cutting out all the commercials, and you save 32 minutes to exercise. Well, you could have taken those two hours and spent them exercising, right? Anyway, the idea is we'll somehow save enough time here and there to add up to something meaningful. She believes that thought is backwards. In other words, we build the lives we want, and that finds us the time we need. One of the women she was studying logged all of her hours, busy, busy, busy woman. She had gone out on a Wednesday evening, came back to find her water heater had blown up. The basement is full of water. A sopping, ugly mess. So that night, she gets the water cut off. The next morning, she calls the plumber and gets him in. The next day, she's called the cleaning company to come and get up all of that wet carpet and pull out the drywall, and you know what it takes. It took seven hours out of her week, practically a work day, to get this done. Now, if you had asked her the beginning of the week, can you have seven hours this week to train for a marathon? 
she would have said, are you out of, my, out of your mind? I'm too busy. But the necessity of her life finding its balance again required it of her, and she found it. You and I can't make more time to figure out how to be faithful. But we can prioritize our faith so that we find the time within our lives to make priorities clear. To be smart people with protective covers that shelter those needing us and who protect with shield and buckler those who are at harm. We have the power to focus our lives on the things that deserve to be there, to live in the shadow of the Most High, and to abide in his shadow for life. So this week, if you need a rubber band around your wrist to remember you're at the table of God, then do it. I beg you to be vulnerable and honest of your need for God and your dependence on your higher power to lead your life through its trials and into more meaning. I beg you to see that your connection to God is of the highest priority for your overall health and peace, assurance and stability for therein lies the transformation of the world. So that when the storms of life are raging, you know who stands by you. I pulled up this hymn. In the midst of tribulation, when the host of hell assail and my strength begins to fail, thou who never lost a battle, say it, stand by me. In the midst of fault and failure, in the midst of fault and failure, when I've done the best I can and my friends misunderstand, thou who knowest all about me, in the midst of persecution, when my foes and war array undertake to stop my way, thou who saved Paul and Silas, When I've grown old and feeble, when I've grown old and feeble, when my life becomes a burden and I'm nearing chilly Jordan, thou who loved us, O oh God, O oh thou lily of the valley, stand by me. I have to tell you, when we were in uh, Chamayo at Espanola during our mission trip, the week before we got there, there was a five-year-old abducted and killed. How do you deal with that? Unless you see her in here. How do you deal with it? Thou who rulest over wind and water, stand by you and me. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen.